few days ago, I was at an online seminar, and Tony Robbins shared something, I think, very valuable about Mel Fisher, who passed away in 1998, but Mel Fisher was a modern-day treasure hunter. He had a firm belief that there was a shipwreck worth hundreds of millions of dollars that had sunk in the 1600s, and he believed that was off the shores of Florida. He didn't have money to search, though, but he convinced other people to fund his research because he had such a belief and such a passion for finding this treasure he knew was there. The first year, he found nothing. Second year, he found nothing. The amazing thing, though, is he was able to convince people to fund his project even after finding nothing. This went on. The fifth year found nothing. Ten years found nothing. Fifteen years he found nothing. How do you convince people, one, to fund something that's producing nothing, and how did he keep going? Well, we'll find out here in a moment, but on the 16th year, he found the gold that he had been looking for, a half a billion dollars worth. So how do you keep going after all that time? Most people would have given up the second year. Who's going to fund something that produces nothing for 15 years? Well, Tony Robbins shares Mel Fisher accomplished that because he had three beliefs. The first belief is the treasure is out there. The second belief is I will find it. And the third belief is it's worth it. That doesn't just apply to the treasure hunting. It applies to anything in life. For us to say, I believe that the treasure is out there. Maybe that treasure for you is an improved marriage, a new job, spiritual growth, walking away from an addiction. It's the belief, though, that has to be there, that the treasure is there. And the second part of that is that I will find it. That in Christ, there is the door that will open. And the third one, it's worth it. You know, we're going to come out of this time with the coronavirus, the lockdown, and each of us can find treasures in this moment, deeper relationships, or maybe other people are having divorces. We can build our marriage. You know what? The treasure is out there and that we can find it because God gives us the grace. And we'll come out of this time saying, you know what? I expanded. I grew. I loved. I forgave. And finding that treasure, holding on to that treasure, it's worth it. The challenge, though, like Charles Schultz, who wrote The Peanuts, said, life is like a 10-speed bike. Most of us have gears we never use. We need to be people that, again, do what needs to be done to accomplish what needs to be accomplished. Consider something here. You know, it's, it's very true. Marriages are ending in divorce, and there's you know a higher rate of spousal abuse now with the lockdown. But here's something. If your marriage is toxic right now, I'll share something you can change today that is based on the research of John Gottman, who has done more research on what marriage health looks like and more research on what leads to divorce. And John Gottman said, here's one thing that he found in each case that there are marriage bids and those bids are responded to very differently from people that divorce and people that are married and fulfilled. And a bid in a marriage is any kind of statement that demands a response. And it can be a simple one. It might be simply, where would you like to eat tonight? Or maybe it is, did you see the sunrise this morning? Now, there's a very different response from couples that are toxic than couples that are fulfilled and happy. And John Gottman said this is one of the key things anybody can change in a moment. Think about this. If you respond positively, positively to your spouse's bid, a simple comment. If you respond positively, that's called turning toward your spouse. Those who end up divorced in toxic relationships, they turn toward or have a positive response 33% of the time. 
That means two-thirds of the time they have a critical response. So if their spouse says, where would you like to eat tonight? They respond, you know what? I don't care. I'm tired of dealing with this. Or if their spouse says, did you see the sunrise? They might respond and say, you know I don't have time for that. What happens though for fulfilled couples? They turn toward their partner's bid positively 87% of the time. Their conversations nine out of 10 times are responsible and positive. Think about this. If your spouse says to you, where would you like to eat? Then the positive turn toward is something like, you know what? Let's go to our favorite restaurant. Remember that great time we had. Or if your spouse says, did you see the sunrise? You might say, I didn't. I bet it was amazing. Tell me about it. Simple things that people say and do that have tremendous consequences. Toxic relationships, we may think that words don't matter, the things that we say, nothing is further from the truth. People in toxic relationships and ending in divorce, or maybe they stay married but unhappy, two-thirds of the time, they respond negatively. That is a choice that can be changed at this moment. We're going to see something else that changes people's lives, but let's finish. We've been talking about Psalm 91. We're going to finish today the last two verses, starting verse 14. He will call on me. I will answer. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. These are the deepest needs of all people being met right here in the promise of the relationship we can have with Christ by his grace. The psalmist is given four promises real quick. The number one is I will answer him. I will answer him. It's the promise that when we need and seek, we shall find by the grace of God. I will answer him. Love this here by Rear Admiral Barry Black, who said, The value of an object is based on the price someone will pay. When it dawned on me that God sent his only son to die for me, no one was ever able to make me feel inferior again. It's a beautiful promise when we know our value in Christ that his love is as high as the heavens are above the earth for those who are his no one can make us feel inferior again second promise in the psalm I will be with him in trouble we all see the trouble in culture nations not just here in the USA but in other countries and God says I'll be with him in trouble answered prayers finding us in our moment of trouble bringing that perfect peace let me give in a study here by San Francisco Hospital. They studied prayer. They had 400 cardiac arrest patients. And half of them, they asked, you know, if you're going to participate in this experiment, they all agreed. And half, they said, well, you're going to be prayed for. And so this half knew somebody was praying for them. How did that half compare to the half that were not prayed for, the ones that were prayed for? The studies show had fewer complications, fewer cases of pneumonia, needed less drug treatment, they recovered faster, and they left the hospital sooner. I'll be with you in trouble, God says. And here's something, again, a great lesson for each of us in this moment. A lot of people worried about illness or maybe fighting illness, and you might say, I don't know how to pray for that. Let me give you Moses' prayer. It's four words, Numbers 12. Moses had a sister, Miriam, and a brother, Aaron. And at this point in Numbers, his brother and sister are very jealous because he's this called-out prophet. So they begin to criticize him harshly. And they're warned not to do that because he's the chosen vessel to lead Israel. And they do this criticism, and then God judges them. And Miriam's judgment is she gets immediately ill, and she has leprosy. And Moses prays that she be healed. Here's a prayer we each can pray. Four simple words, Numbers 12, 13. Moses cried out to the Lord, God, please heal her. She was healed in an instant. 
Anybody can pray that. Maybe it's, God, please heal my marriage. God, please heal my fears. God, please heal our country. It's just that simple. And the promise is that when we call, he will answer. And in trouble, he is with us. The third one in Psalm 91.14 is, I will deliver him. I will deliver him. Let me share something from Cheryl Sandberg, Chief Operating Officer of Facebook. I don't know her spiritual beliefs. She's worth $2 billion. She wrote a book about success in 2017 at the height of her career. Everything seemed to be going her way. Her husband, 47 years old, was jogging and dropped dead of a heart attack. And her world was pulled out from under her. $2 billion, this position well-known, suddenly everything's turned upside down. And she went through this valley, and here's what she shared about that, though. I learned that in the face of the void or in the face of any challenge, you can choose joy and meaning. You can choose joy and meaning. Any of us can here in this moment. Watch the news. There's going to be fear, anxiety, division. We grasp who we are in Christ, that he is with us. He delivers us. He answers us then we can choose joy and meaning. Cheryl Sandberg said, here's some examples of joy and meaning. You can have gratitude for the kindness of friends, the love of family, and the laughter of a child. Last part of verse 14 says, I will honor him. Imagine that promise there, that when we seek God and we know Christ and pursue him, that he honors our efforts. He honors our life. He responds in meets us at our deepest place of our heart's cry. I love this lyric here. Walter Hawkins summarized who we are in Christ. 1975, he wrote the song Changed. Just listen, I'll read the lyrics. A change, a change has come over me. He changed my life, now I'm free. He washed away all my sins. He made me whole. He washed me white as snow. He changed my life complete, and now I sit, I sit at his feet. To do what must be done, I'll work and work until he comes. A wonderful change has come over me. Martin Seligman did a a decades-long happiness study. He said there is one single thing that anybody can do that's going to make them the happiest. He said, without a doubt, this one exercise will change your life. I'll come back to that here in just a moment. Let's finish Psalm 91, verse 15, which says, With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. The promise is long life and the glory of knowing Christ, salvation. With long life, the promise there is, it's never too late. Each of us can start today, no matter how young, how old, we can begin today. We can make changes today that maybe we should have made a long time ago. And here's the fascinating quote here from Hillel, who lived in the first century BC. He passed away just a few years before Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. And Hillel was this rabbi. And so he knew King Herod. He lived in Jerusalem. And he wrote about theology and faith. And he made a quote, many of us quoted now for you know 2,000 years, not knowing the origination of that quote, but it was Hillel who said, if not now, when? With long life, we are given the promise we shall be satisfied. It's never too late to begin anew. If not, now when? 
You know, everybody I'm sure knows Nicolas Cage, the actor. The reason is he's been in a hundred plus movies. But he shared something changed his life one day. His father got him a gift at Christmas that was this Pinocchio doll. And he said he played with the doll and it broke. He was disappointed. His father said, well, let's see what we can do. They went outside. His father dug a hole and buried Pinocchio and said, we'll come back tomorrow. And the next day he was excited. He ran outside to the place they buried this toy. And he said, sitting on the ground was this larger and more beautiful Pinocchio doll. And he was so excited. He went back inside and grabbed other toys. And he started to bury them as well. And then his father said, you know, that was just a special one, that one we buried. But Nicholas Cage said he learned that day something incredible that, you know, something that seemed broken can come out so amazing. Something that was seemingly small can have this inspirational turnaround and such a huge ending. There's a prayer that's 1,800 years old called the Blessing of Ephraim. It's a traditional blessing on children that, that some traditions use. And the blessing is that their child will be like Ephraim and Manasseh. Why? Well, Ephraim and Manasseh were Joseph's two children. They're not really talked about in Scripture much after this moment here. Joseph, of course, the, the person that would lead Egypt. His brothers betrayed him, of course, and he had the, the coat of many colors. Well, he had two children, Ephraim and Manasseh. Why bless a child that you'll be like Ephraim and Manasseh when they're not really found much in Scripture? Well, the reason is, if you go back before these sons, you see the other sons and brothers what happened? Cain and Abel, violence. Isaac, Ishmael, violence. Jacob and Esau, betrayal, violence. Joseph himself and his brothers, betrayal, violence. The reason there's a blessing of Ephraim is the ancient sages did this because Ephraim and Manasseh were the first brothers in the Bible to get along. It's a recognition that happiness begins with peace with others. It begins when we can bless and give to each other. Brings us back to the study by Martin Seligman. What produces the single most reliable increase in well-being? It's if you and I do an act of kindness for another. Whether that's a kindness that somebody knows or it's something we do that's an act that's anonymous, that brings us the most happiness, studies show. Because we're built to be givers. We're built to be loved. We're built to give love, not live in fear and division and hate and upsets. I appreciate Evan Mofick summarizing faith. You know, you don't have to use big spiritual sounding words. He says, faith is the belief that life has meaning. To see that there's meaning every day and to pull forth that meaning with a belief that says there's a treasure even in this time. And I can find that treasure and it's going to be worth it. You know, faith gives ordinary people extraordinary powers. We have to be different than the way culture goes. The fear and the upsets and the divisions. It's never too late to make that change and to simply say, you know, if not now, when? Let me show you something that's happened in culture. A study Rodney Johnson shared about the, the phrase dead to the world. In the 1700s, dead to the world, it was a biblical term and it was still used that way about a person who had purposefully chosen to leave the world and its influences and be alive to God. However, in the 1800s, it became known 
to be associated with somebody unconscious. In the late 1800s, dead to the world became a terminology for somebody in a deep sleep. In the early 1900s, dead to the world was used to describe somebody drunk. And Rodney Johnson shares, it took Satan 200 years to degenerate a figure of speech that described a person of faith, to change it to mean somebody in a deep sleep, and then to somebody who was an alcoholic. In truth, a person dead to the world is a person whose life resembles most that of Jesus. He gives four simple pictures of what it means to be in faith. The world does not influence how you think. Your emotions don't dominate how you respond to circumstance. You don't value what the world values. And you see things the way God sees them. That's what it is to embrace and live out promises like Psalm 91. So I want to end this morning with an incredible, you know, miracle story. World War II, Dunkirk on the French coast in May of 1940. There were 300 plus thousand trapped British, Belgian, and French troops. On one side is the English Channel. They're all on a beach here. Pursuing them is German forces. These men are trapped on the beach with no place to go. Even Germany said the British army is encircled. We are proceeding to annihilate. Winston Churchill proclaimed, I thought we might save 30,000 of those men. You see, there could be no way for military ships to reach the beach because they would have gotten stuck in the sand. Kenneth Copeland took Psalm 91 and made it personal. You find this on our Facebook page. You don't have to write this down, but maybe to begin to pray like this, here's an example of what it means to embrace life with our words, our declarations, our faith, meaning to maybe pray Psalm 91 like this. I live in the shelter of the Most High. I will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. This I declare about the Lord. He's my refuge, my safety, my God. I trust him. He will rescue me from every trap and deadly disease. He'll cover me with his feathers and shelter me with his wings. His promises are my armor and protection. I'm not afraid of the terror of the night or the danger of the day. I'm not afraid of disease or darkness or disaster. Though a thousand may fall at my side, 10,000 die around me. These evils won't touch me. I make the Lord my refuge, the most high my shelter. That's why no evil will conquer me. No plague come near my home. His angels are protecting me. And because I trust in his name, he rescues me, protects me. When I call on him, he answers, he delivers. He's always with me in trouble. And he rescues me. And he gives me long life. Robin Arzon simply shared, allow the test to become your testimony. Hope you'll join us, you know, whether it's here Sunday morning live in our service or on Facebook. Our sermons are online, acrofirst.com, as well as on Facebook Live. We invite you to just share all of that so we can begin to, to bring more and more light into the darkness. Because God is faithful.
And that's the message we most need to hear. 300,000 plus men trapped in Dunkirk. The king and queen announced Sunday, May 22nd would be a national day of prayer. They led by example. They prayed on their knees. Parliament prayed on their knees. The churches filled as people gathered to pray. Result of that prayer was this. The German troops halted 12 miles from the beach for reasons that are simply not clear to this day. Violent weather blocked the sight of the men on the beach and pilots were grounded. The German pilots were unable to fly because of the storm. And what about the boats? You still can't get the boats to the shore. Citizens started to show up from Britain. And these small boats that might carry, you know, a dozen people. All in all, 800 tiny boats arrived to go to the beach, grab the men, and then take them to the military boats waiting offshore. 800 tiny boats. These were boats that were driven by, you know, bankers and lawyers, farmers and fishermen and Boy Scouts and just citizens of all type who began to come together in unity and in answer to a prayer. And what happened? Day one, 47,000 men rescued. Day two, 53,000 men rescued. Day three, 38,000 men rescued. Day four, 64,000 men. In a 10-day period, the total troops, British, Belgian, and French included, rescued off that beach unharmed 338,000. What can God do in our life seeing that he is the one who takes ordinary people and uses them to do extraordinary things? Our job is to believe, you know, the treasure is out there. By God's grace, we will find it. When all of this is over, we will know that treasure, it's worth it.